evening, church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity that we have here tonight to, to better understand your word. And I pray that it's not time wasted, but you prepare each of our hearts um, to hear what you want to say. And that, yeah, you speak, God, here tonight. That any nerves that are in me would just fall away and I could, uh, I could speak your words um, above anything else. And that ultimately... Ultimately, it's you and your word that rises above everything else here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in week two of A Doubter's Guide to the Bible. And last week, Joel, he kicked off the series by looking at this idea of how could everything have been good? When God first created the world, the Garden of Eden, how could everything have been good? What did it mean for everything to be good? And we're taking a pretty big turn from that this week. And that's because that's what the Bible does. And we're going to be looking at the question, how could everything now suddenly be bad? What does that mean? And I want to just start by looking at this little summary. We read a bit of this last week, and we're going to be reading a bit of this each week. And it helps us just track through the story that we're working through. And it says, a good God created a good world in which he placed good people to do good work so that they could live the good life. The good life meant living harmoniously in community with God and others within the physical world created for us. The good people created with a freedom to choose were convinced by Satan that this wasn't true. And consequently, a dark thread runs throughout history and the heart of humanity. Everything promptly fell apart. Socially, our relationships with one another. Physically, the land became difficult to work. And spiritually, our relationship with our Creator was fractured. Without God's gracious intervention, humanity is on a spiral of self-absorption, injustice, and arrogance. So tonight, we are going to be looking at the next chapter of the story. When the perfection of the world, it was corrupted when sin entered our hearts. But while we're doing that, I also want to explore the gospel, because it's very easy to think that the gospel starts in the gospels, you know, with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, naturally. But the reality is it starts a whole lot sooner than that, and I want to kind of unpack that a little bit tonight. So I want to start by looking at the word euangelion, euangelion. That's the word that we get translated to gospel, and it literally means good news. Now, I don't think that's probably news to you. You probably know that. We hear that a lot, all right? Gospel is good news. But what we have to understand about good news is that for news to be good, it has to invade bad spaces, right? That's what makes it good. Like, if I go to the doctors and I get the results that everything's clear, that's, that's good news. If I get the result I'm hoping for on an exam, if I pass my driving test, Right, when I got down on one knee and I asked Jessie to marry me, and she said yes, that was very good news. All right? Why? Because there was potential for something to go really wrong in those situations. Right? For news to be good, it has to invade bad spaces. And I think the mistake that we so often make with the gospel is we skip straight to the good stuff. 
without first understanding the broken context in which it came into. And in doing so, I fear that some of us never really understand the magnificence and the power of the gospel. Because we've got to start with the bad news before we can get to the good news. So I just want to warn you right from the get-go that this week is bad news week, all right? So if you were coming to church tonight and you were like, I want an encouraging message, wrong week, all right? Wrong week, okay? This is bad news week. So we're going to be tackling some, some hard topics. But in doing that, I really hope that we can allow the gospel to shine because the gospel really does shine when we first understand the darkness in which it came into. So... Where does the story start? The story starts in Genesis 3, which we often refer to as the fall. So I want to start there tonight. And if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Genesis 3 with me. If you don't, there might be one around you on the um, the seats. And if you don't have one at home, take that with you. That's our gift to you because we love for people to engage with the Word of God. So Genesis 3, we're going to be starting in verse 1. Is what it says. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree in which I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. That's gold right there. The Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree of which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. It's heavy stuff. 
It's the moment that sin invaded the world, when perfection, it was fractured. And sin is an interesting one to talk about, because I'm aware that not everyone believes in sin. Some people believe it was just an invention of the church, an invention of religion to control people through fear. But what I find interesting is that it doesn't matter what your background is, it doesn't matter what you believe. Even the most relativistic atheists would see stories like we see again and again on the news where people just do horrific things to other people. They would see that and they'd be like, there's something wrong there. Like there's something we all agree on. Something has gone wrong with humanity. In Christianity, we have a really simple answer for what that is. It's hard to swallow, but it's simple, and that is sin. It started in the garden, and it's easy to look at this story and to think, why would that be such a big deal? It's just a small act of defiance. Why is it such a big deal? But that small act of defiance, that moment where Adam and Eve chose to step outside of the parameters in which God created them to live, started a chain of events that followed. Because that's often what happens with sin. It starts small, but then it escalates. And in the next chapter, their children, Cain and Abel. Cain, he kills his brother Abel, and we're introduced to murder. And the next chapters are just this downward spiral where humanity just gets even more wicked to the point. In Genesis chapter 6, it says this. This is hard to read. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made them on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. That's what the brokenness led to. And it's a brokenness that we actually still live in. Where we see socially we're broken in our relationships. There's constant tensions. We see it in wars around the world. Physically, this world is broken. We see it in natural disasters occurring across creation. And spiritually, we're broken because that sin, it separates us from our Creator. John Dixon, in the book, A Doubter's Guide to the Bible, he says it this way. He says, without God's gracious intervention, humanity is on a spiral of self-absorption, injustice, and arrogance that will lead to humanity's ultimate fail. So if I want to answer the question, how is everything bad? There's actually a really simple answer. And I guarantee you will not be satisfied with it. Sin. That's it. But I think I need to probably give you a little bit more than that. So we're going to spend some time unpacking this word sin and looking at what it actually means and how we can better understand it. And as I was preparing this message, I asked myself, why is that important? Why is it important that we need to understand sin, that we have a complete theology around sin? And I came to two primary reasons, the different points that just seem to come back to these two different things. And the first is that it's crucial in order for us to fulfill the purpose in which we were created. What is the purpose in which we were created? To glorify God, to glorify our Creator with everything that we are. You see, we can't do that if we don't first understand sin. If we first don't understand the depth of our sin and our depravity, we can't understand 
why Jesus had to come and die on the cross for us. That will never fully make sense if we don't first fully understand our brokenness. And if we don't understand Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we don't really understand how good our God is. And if we don't understand how good our God is, we can't worship him with everything that we are. And I often think a lack of understanding sin often actually leads us to really shallow worship. Because we're worshiping God from a place of not really understanding how amazing and good he is. The second reason is this. It impacts how we speak the gospel to others. See, as a society, I think that we love to be optimistic. We love to focus on the good things. And I think we also do this when we speak about the gospel to people. We lean towards all the positive things about God. You know, we want to talk about his love, his kindness, his grace, his mercy. And all of that is so important. But we also, yeah, we want to talk about miracles and the things that God is doing here and now. And that's also so important. But the subject that we often try and dance around the most is sin. It's the one that we often feel uncomfortable about, you know? We don't really know how to talk about it. I'm sure I'm not the only one that feels this. But by avoiding that particular subject when we're sharing the gospel to people, we're doing a disservice to them because all we're doing is we're speaking a gospel that is confusing and makes zero sense because the gospel makes no sense without sin. Because that is why Jesus came. He came to die on that cross to save us from what? Our sin. The gospel only makes sense when we understand sin. And I have this theory, and it's not just my own thoughts and feelings, but I really believe this is backed by Scripture. It says that the greatest reason that people today in our culture don't follow God is not because they don't believe in Him. It's not because they don't like the rules that they see associated with it. It's because they don't see why they need saving. In the book, A Doubter's Guide to the Bible, John Dixon, he uses this picture of his son when he was younger. His son was swimming out in the ocean and he got caught in a rip. And the lifeguard picked up on it really quickly and swam out and helped him get back to shore. And his son's response to this lifeguard, after this lifeguard had basically just saved his life, wasn't thank you. It wasn't one of appreciation. No, it was, I was fine. I was fine. I didn't, I didn't need your help. I was fine. Why? Because he didn't understand the danger he was in. He didn't know what that rip was. He didn't know what it was pulling him towards. And that's the reality that so much of our world lives in. And if we can't help them understand their brokenness, their sin, and how that separates them from their creator, they're never going to understand the message of Jesus. We have to start with sin. So I want to look at two misconceptions that I think we have that often um, skew our view of what sin is. And the first is this. First is that we buy into the lie that we are intrinsically good. Like I said, we're, we're going deep tonight. We're tackling some hard topics. So I, I want to explain what I mean by this. We buy into the lie that we are intrinsically good. If you're interested, just for a moment here, um, 
Who here, if you could just raise your hand, has ever told a lie? Yeah, you see anyone not raising their hand, just point at them. <laughs> we're all willing to admit that we've, we've, we've told a lie, well, most of us. Um, we're, we're willing to probably admit that we've, we've stolen something, that we've, we've taken something that's not ours. We're willing to admit our mistakes, right? We all probably know that if we stood before God and we were judged by the Ten Commandments, we would be guilty, right? We know this, and yet for some reason we just buy into this idea that we're intrinsically good. I think that's because our world tells us it. It says, yes, you've made mistakes, but you're good. It's like our good outweighs the bad that we've done. I'm good, you're good, we're good people. We hear it all the time. And then we look at other people in our lives and we're like, they are a mess. They've got issues. And that just like amplifies our own goodness. And the problem with this is that we're taking goodness and we're defining it differently to how God defines goodness. I've often heard people question Christianity like this. They say, well, what about a good Muslim? What, what about a good Hindu? What about a good atheist? Doesn't that mean anything? Well, in reality, from what I read in the Bible, there's no such thing as a good Muslim. There's no such thing as a good Hindu. And there's no such thing as a good atheist. Oh, and there's no such thing as a good Christian. Not in the way that God defines goodness. Let me show you what I mean. In Luke chapter 18, there's a story of a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I used to read that and it would confuse me. Like, for two reasons. Firstly, I felt like Jesus was missing the question. It's like he asked you, how does he inherit eternal life? And you're just focused on the title that he gave you. And then the second reason is that surely, Jesus, you are God, so surely you are good. What's the issue here? But that's not what's happening. You see, Jesus is addressing this man's question in his answer. And we see in the verses that follow this, this man says, I've kept all the commandments since I was young. And we start to see that this man thought he could earn his good status with God based on the things that he did. And Jesus picked up on this straight away and said, no, no one is good except God alone. Your definition of goodness and God's are not the same. In Romans, it says it like this. It says, no one is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is the bad news. Can I just say, if we're looking at how God defines goodness, you will never be good enough for God. I will never be good enough for God. If we're going to just do a comparison here for a moment, to the prophet Isaiah. Now, I don't know where you put yourself on the goodness scale next to Isaiah. I would have to put myself a few levels below, I think. This man was used by God in amazing ways, like spoke to nations, brought the prophecy about the Messiah. And in Isaiah 6, he encounters the presence of God, and this is what he says. He says, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord Almighty. The prophet Isaiah, when he stood before the holiness of God, that was his response. I am nothing. I am unclean. I am unworthy. That's how we need to start viewing the goodness of God. Our definition of good and God's are very different. And that moment that we buy into the lie that somehow we're just intrinsically good, like it's just there, is the moment that we stop feeling the weight of our sin and the moment that we stop experiencing the power of the gospel. Because the power of the gospel comes from a place of recognizing that it found us in that brokenness. And if we live our lives thinking we're good, the message of the gospel just doesn't make sense. We can't buy into this lie that we're just somehow intrinsically good. The second point is this. Our view of identity taints our view of the gospel. Now, when I was preparing this message, I questioned a couple of times whether I wanted to go down this road because it can be one of a lot of tension. Um, Because I think it's really current and quite relevant, particularly in the younger generation. Um, And I thought that's, that's not a reason to avoid it. Um, So I want to explain what I mean by this. The average person in our culture, in our society, particularly if we're talking about younger generations, I think um, us younger generations are more guilty of buying into this, they would build their belief systems and their values around ideas like this. Living for yourself, living out your identity, expressing who you are and following the desires of your heart. And some of that might even sound all right. Um, It's even more than that, though. It's like expressing who you really are. Uh, Being empowered to live your own life from within, right? That's what our culture is telling us. That's what it's building its worldview around. And if if I'm honest with you right now, I think that's probably the greatest reason why we live in a generation of self love, a generation that's more focused on self esteem and self confidence than any generation before it. A generation that uses the word identity more than any generation before it. And the reason I raise this and I bring this up is because this worldview is not compatible with the gospel. I would go so far to say that it's actually completely opposite. Because what's, what's the worldview of the, the Bible? What's the worldview of the gospel? Well, it says something very different. It says that... The heart, the inner person, that's actually the last thing that we want to base our lives upon. It's the last thing we want to live for. Why? Because of Genesis 3. Because of the fall, we now know that the heart, the identity, the inner self, it's corrupt, it's deceitful, it's unreliable. It's simple. And we need to be saved from it. 1 John says it this way. It says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires, they pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And 
prophet Jeremiah, he says this. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And yet that's what our world is telling us to follow. That's what our world is telling us to to base our lives upon. And I think now more than ever, we need to know the difference here. The difference of that worldview and the worldview of the gospel. And we have to hold to it firmer than ever before. Because if we don't, the moment that we, we forget what this is about is the moment that we fall into the confusion and we lose sight of truth. We lose sight of the gospel. We lose sight of our sin. We lose sight of what our lives are actually about. And I, I just think that's dangerous. That's really, really dangerous. So where does this leave us? None of us are good. None of us will ever be good enough for God. Our hearts are wicked, deceitful. We can't trust them with anything. This is the bad news. That I'm bad, you're bad, everyone's bad. This affects everything. Every relationship, every interaction, this affects every aspect of our world. This is the bad news. And here's the even worse news. We can't do anything to fix it. Unless somehow God could intervene. There's one last scripture I want to look at in the band. You guys can come up as I finish here. In Ephesians, this is what it says. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is the bad news. This is the darkness and the depth of our sin and depravity that we were in. And it's the foundation for understanding the beauty and the power and the magnificence of the gospel. You see, we were in a place where we were as far from God as we could ever get, right? Completely undeserving of anything from Him. And yet, His love for each of us was so great that He wasn't willing to leave us there. And because of that, we can read on in the next verse where it says, but God is so rich in mercy. He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life and He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of His incredible wealth, of His grace, His kindness towards us. 
as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So no one can boast. This is the message of the gospel. And it only makes sense when we first, when we start with the bad news, when we start with how far from God we were and how undeserving of that gift we were. And that's important to understand because it's only then that we can actually begin to worship God with everything because we start to understand why He is so amazing, why He is so good. It's only then that we can actually start to help people really understand why they need God. Because without Him, they're lost. It's only when they find Him that they have a life full of purpose and hope. That's the promise that we have. And it's a promise that we're going to start to explore a little bit more throughout the series.